you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and let me help us all get our minds back into this this story and remember the, the context, kind of what's going on. I'd point out two things. One would be the context of the approaching Passover feast, and the other would be the feast that just occurred in Bethany that was led by Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Um, in anticipation of the Passover, the pilgrims from surrounding areas were slowly arriving in Jerusalem, preparing for that festival, which was a time, as you probably know, when God's people would remember their deliverance, the, the deliverance that God had brought them through the 10 plagues, through the exodus out of Egypt, and then through the Red Sea. And as they were gathering, there were some questions, questions about whether or not Jesus was going to come to the feast, especially in light of the fact that the Pharisees had told everyone to let them know if they saw Jesus, because if they saw Jesus, they wanted to arrest him and ultimately kill him and possibly kill Lazarus as well. So we have this context of the Passover feast. We also remember this context of the, the feast in Bethany. You remember at that meal, the, the highlight was when uh, Mary anointed the feet of Jesus, which Jesus said she did to prepare him for his burial. As we take these two things together, then we start to see that the death of Jesus is becoming a prominent concern in John's gospel both through these, these threats on Jesus' life as well as his own predictions of his uh, approaching death. In light of all this, here's what makes sense. It makes sense that Jesus would quietly and secretively go to the feast in Jerusalem if he decides to go at all. Of course, that makes sense if your goal is to avoid death. And yet what we find is that Jesus who is fully aware of and in full control of his approaching death, his hour of glorification as he calls it, he instead enters Jerusalem in the most public way that he ever has. He calls attention to himself in a way that he has not done up until this point. The one moment when he should be quiet is the moment that he invites the praises of all the people. And yet, as he does this, he helps the crowds and the disciples, and he helps us today to more fully understand just what kind of a king he is and what kind of a kingdom he is inviting us into. As Jesus is revealed in these scenes, the scripture calls to us and says, worship Jesus. Worship Jesus as the true king and follow him on the path that leads to true glory. Let's take that as our big idea today. Worship Jesus specifically worship Jesus as the true king and then follow him on the path that leads to true glory. Remember this theme in John's gospel, the idea that Jesus comes with heavenly wisdom that confronts our worldly wisdom and often shatters it. It's hard for us to understand. Our vision of a king and of a kingdom of power and authority can often be a little bit off. We get influenced by the world around us as to what is most important or how we should live in this present world. We mistake success for blessing, and we wrongly think that death always means defeat every time. 
And so Jesus arrives into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, riding to his death, and thereby in that act he adjusts our view, not only of who he is, but also of who we are to be as his followers. Here in his actions and in his words, he reveals the kind of king that he is, and he helps us to see that we are to, that how we are to follow him if we are members of his kingdom through faith in him. This picture of Jesus challenges us, it, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and ultimately it calls us to worship Jesus as the true king and follow him on the path that leads to true glory. Let's read from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, and I'd like to read all the way through verse 36. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, it says, The next day, this is the day after that feast in Bethany, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done, by, done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, Believe in the light, 
that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Worship Jesus as the true king and follow him on the path that leads to true glory. As we think about this, let's arrange our thoughts around some revelations about just who King Jesus is. And so notice first that Jesus is the gentle Messiah King. He is the gentle Messiah King. A little geography lesson. Bethany sits just east of Jerusalem. So as Jesus was traveling towards Jerusalem, he would have reached the Mount of Olives and then descended down into what is known as the Kidron Valley and entered into the city by the east gate. We're told then in this narrative that as he, as he came down into that valley, out from the east gate came this crowd of people who had come to the feast and who had heard that Jesus was arriving and what he had done. And as they came out to meet him, they took palm branches in their hands and waving them, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, this was not a parade that had been organized by the city council and put onto the community calendar for everyone to show up for. No, this was a a spontaneous celebration of Jesus and the hopes that the people were attaching to him. Palm branches were not specifically associated with the Passover festival, but were more actually probably of a nationalistic symbol, which means that, that the crowd may have been thinking about Jesus' arrival more in terms of a, as a messianic king, meaning one who was arriving at Jerusalem to reign as the, the king of Israel, which is what they, they call him. Uh, notice the, the three parts of their cry. The, first, there's this word, Hosanna. Hosanna. It's a Hebrew word that means give salvation now or just simply save us. As they wave their palm branches, what are they saying to Jesus? Save us, Jesus. Bring salvation now. One of my favorite musical artists, Andrew Peterson, has written a song called Hosanna. And he talks about that song and says that this word, uh, that the cry Hosanna is it, it accomplishes two things at the exact same time. First, it's an acknowledgement that we need to be saved. And second, it's an acknowledgement that the person that we're crying out to is the only one who can save us. Therefore, he says that it is both a cry for help and a shout of praise. Hosanna is a cry for help and a shout for praise simultaneously. We worship Jesus as the only one who can save us, and our cries to him to do just that exalt him to the right place. I think this little word, Hosanna, reminds us that we we don't need to be hesitant in asking Jesus for help or calling out for him to save us, because in doing so, we're, we're praising him as the only one who can save us. Because of his limitless love and power, our cries are not a, an inconvenience to him. Rather, they are an opportunity for him to display that love and power that leads us into worship of him. In your life, maybe you're hesitant to ask others for help because it inconveniences them or because it humbles you. Kids, maybe you struggle to go to your parents because they're, they're busy and you feel like you're going to inconvenience them. And, or maybe you just want to be independent and you don't want to admit that you need help. 
We should never think in those ways about coming to Christ, though. We should come to Jesus willingly acknowledging that we cannot save ourselves, that we need help, and knowing that he is always ready to save us. We could use this word really practically this week, couldn't we? What if as we go through this week, we take up the the simple word Hosanna as a prayer in large moments and in small moments when you're overwhelmed by life itself or just by the dishes? Uh, A cry in the midst of life just that we can quietly utter or if you want to shout it in your house or in your car, feel free to say Hosanna. And in saying Hosanna, we're not only crying out for help to the only one who can save us, but we're also shouting praise to him. We're saying that he is good, he is loving, he is powerful, he is the one who can save us, and we're asking for his help. So I invite you to take a a one-word prayer this week, Hosanna, and release it in moments of stress or moments of joy. It's interesting to note that this word, Hosanna, is actually found... in the, in the New Testament, only in this scene of the triumphal entry. And in the four Gospels, it's there, but it's the only place in the whole New Testament where the word Hosanna is found. And it's only found in one place in the entire Old Testament, which is Psalm 118.25, where it's translated, save us, save us, God. And the next verse of that Psalm, verse 26 of Psalm 118, is where we find the second part of this cry, which is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this was originally probably a blessing pronounced on the the pilgrims that were arriving in Jerusalem for the various feasts. Blessed are you who are coming to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. But here it becomes a blessing on Jesus as the one who has been sent from the Father, the one who, as he himself has been emphasizing, the one who speaks and acts as the Father has called him to. Now, if there's any question about what the crowd is indicating in quoting Psalm 118, it's settled in the next phrase of verse 13, even the king of Israel. The king of Israel. That's what Nathaniel called Jesus back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? You're the king of Israel. And it's similar to a phrase that, that, that Pilate will put on a placard and hang on the cross above Jesus. The king of the Jews. The crowds had heard what Jesus had said and done, and now This group is ready to exalt him as Messiah and King. And yet, as we've seen, their understanding of what it would mean for him to be their king was rooted in visions of power and authority. They saw him like someone, like like Judas Maccabeus of, of some years earlier, one who would use his strength to overthrow Israel's earthly opponents and oppressors and restore the glory of God's people. But Jesus was not coming as that kind of Messiah King right now. Rather, he was arriving with the words of Isaiah 53 in his heart. He was coming as the suffering servant. So Jesus does something that I think simultaneously embraces the fact that he is the Messiah King, while also shaking up the crowd's misunderstandings about what that meant. And he does that simply by by finding a donkey and riding on it. Now the other gospels give us more details about how he acquired that donkey, um, but it's a choice that would have confused the crowd in some ways. This crowd was envisioning uh, envisioning a conquering king, and a conquering king comes into the city on what? Well, on a horse, right? I mean, a a war horse of, of some kind, elevating himself above the crowd so that they could see this warrior king arriving 
Can you imagine what kind of a frenzy that the crowd would have been whipped up into if Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a horse? Can you imagine? But what does he do? He rides in on a lowly donkey. Maybe you can imagine a presidential motorcade that you've seen on television, or maybe you've watched it come by. Usually the president rides in some sort of a sleek black car with tinted windows. But maybe you can think about the president. The motorcade comes, and and he's in a Ford Taurus, or maybe like a Honda Accord, or maybe he's in my CRV, and he's got the windows down because the air conditioning doesn't work, and he's got to keep cool, you know? That, that vision doesn't pack the same punch, does it? No, in a similar way, donkeys, they're like Ford Tauruses, you know? They get the job done. They get you where you need to go, but they're not, they're not regal animals. And as I think about this picture, they're also not very tall. Maybe you've seen representations of Jesus sitting on a donkey, and when you see that, he's sitting on a donkey, and he's almost at eye level with all the people that are worshiping him. He's not exalted up above them. He is almost looking at them in the eye as they are crying out to him. It's an interesting picture, and the choice of a donkey reframes their idea of what it meant that he was coming as a king. But not only that, it's a direct fulfillment of a messianic prophecy in Zechariah 9 that, that uh, Trevor read for us earlier. What's interesting is that John quotes it here in verse 15, And he begins with the command. You see the command there? It's two words. Fear not. But if you go and you look at the prophecy in Zechariah 9, Zechariah begins his prophecy, rejoice greatly. So why does John change it? Hmm. I think the words fear not, as I've read, could have actually been borrowed from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, that John is sort of combining a couple of prophecies. Isaiah 49, this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11. And in it, listen for the dichotomy between a strong king and a humble king. This is what Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 9. Go, up, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And what does he look like? He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you see that? His arm rules, his reward is with him, his recompense is great, and then he's coming to gather lambs like a shepherd. Couple that with the picture of the the words in in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Just who is this king that's showing up in Jerusalem? He is the gentle Messiah King. He has come not with the sword, but with the shepherd's staff to gather his sheep. He's come not on a horse, but on a donkey. He's come not to punish his enemies, but to be punished on behalf of his enemies so that he can make them his friends. He's come to bring peace and to gather his children. He comes in humility, a servant who very soon is going to stoop to wash the feet of his followers and then will submit 
to death itself as their substitute. That's the kind of king. As you take in that picture of Jesus, this gentle Messiah king, uh, the commands of of Isaiah 40 and Zechariah 9, I think, become our applications, don't they? Fear not. Rejoice greatly. They're kind of two sides of the same coin in some ways, but I think they help us to think about Jesus, the, the gentle Messiah King. Fear not. There's so much to be afraid of in the world, isn't there? And often religion is seen to be in the business of causing people fear, but when we see this picture of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem, he comes riding on a donkey, humble and gentle. He comes to offer his people true peace. He doesn't strike fear in our hearts. Rather, he he calls to us. We feel welcomed by him. We see that he's not arriving to crush us. He's come to rescue us. And we should be clear that this call to fear not is one that's only for his people. It's for his sheep. Why? Because he's going to come again, isn't he? Revelation tells us that when he returns, he will not be on a donkey. He will be on a horse, a war horse, and he is going to come and he's going to punish all those who have not turned to him through faith for salvation. But in this age, as we see Jesus, he comes to us humbly, gently, on a donkey. He is our gentle Messiah King. And if we know this Christ is Savior, then we not only have nothing to fear, but we have every reason to rejoice. Rejoice greatly at who Jesus is. Just as we find that there's so much in our world to be afraid of, there's also so much to grieve and to not rejoice over. There is so much sadness and heartbreak all around us and in us. But as we see the humble King Jesus arrive, we're called to rejoice, to rejoice greatly that he has come in righteousness to save us. In doing that, we don't need to deny all of the difficulties that we face, but we can joyfully cry out to him, Hosanna, save us, because he is able and he is willing to do just that. And that is something to rejoice greatly over, even in the midst of all the difficulties. Now, for all of the enthusiasm surrounding Jesus, there were still a lot of blind spots in the crowd's response to him, and not just the crowd's response, but verse 16 indicates that the disciples didn't fully understand all of the Old Testament prophecies that were being fulfilled through Christ, the ones that were converging in him. It was only after his glorification that everything came together and, and made sense. His glorification, as we've seen, and as we'll see in verse 23, refers to his crucifixion, but I think it also encapsulates his his death, his resurrection, his ascension, maybe even the arrival of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, because only after he went to the cross could they fully understand the kind of Messiah that he was. Only after his resurrection and his ascension could they grasp the nature of his kingdom and just how he was going to reign as a king. Only through the indwelling of the Spirit would they be able to recall these events with divine clarity. In fact, it's only in the cross that we can truly take heart from these commands to to fear not and to rejoice greatly because it's in the work of the gospel that the fear of judgment and death are taken away from us. It's only because Christ has died and risen again that we can rejoice greatly. Brothers and sisters, the cross is what defines us. The cross of Jesus is what defines us. It's not a mistake that that's the only symbol that's up on this stage. The cross is what defines 
the church. It's our hope, it's our peace, it's our justification, it's our joy. And as we're going to see later, it's actually our model for living. Even before it has happened in the narrative, John is showing us that the glorification of Jesus in his death and resurrection are what define us if we are his children. We must always be returning to the cross so that we can know who we are and so that we won't be filled with fear, but rather with rejoicing. Fear not, rejoice greatly. Why? Because Jesus is the gentle Messiah King who comes on a donkey to die for his children. As we continue to look at this scene, I want you to notice what I'm going to call a confluence of people. A confluence uh, refers typically to the way two or more rivers join together. Ken and I were talking about one of the most famous ones there in Pittsburgh, where the, the rivers come together, the Allegheny and the Monongahela. Only someone from that area knows how to pronounce those things, so I'm proud of myself for a small moment. Didn't mess that up. A confluence of rivers, they, they join together. And here there's this sort of confluence of, of crowds, but their joining is not, is not gentle. Rather, they form a, a current that sort of accelerates the narrative forward such that in less than a week, the crowds that are heard shouting Hosanna are going to be shouting crucify him. How does that happen so quickly? I think it's in part the way that these four crowds sort of come together outside and in Jerusalem. So think about four crowds that are converging in some sort of a confluence. First, there's the, the crowd coming from Bethany. This is those who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. Maybe they had attended that dinner the night before, and they are thrilled with who Jesus is. They're coming down the Mount of Olives. They're heading to the east gate of Jerusalem with Jesus. And as they have been doing since the day that they saw it, they're bearing witness to who Jesus is and what he has done specifically in the resurrection of Lazarus. This crowd is thrilled with who Jesus is. And as they come towards the city, they're coming down the mountain. As they come, this other crowd of people comes out of the city and approaches this crowd that's coming down. Now, the population of Jerusalem was, was massive at this point. In the Passover celebration, it could have swelled to over two million people that are filling Jerusalem from all these different areas they've, they've come. And some fraction of them come out to, to meet Jesus. They've probably heard the stories about Jesus in years prior, and now this testimony about the raising of Lazarus has sparked some sort of renewed excitement. And so they come out to meet him and exalt him as Messiah. The, the one that they're longing for. You see these two crowds coming together. And then there's a third group, and it's the Pharisees. I don't know if they were right there watching this happen, or maybe they're up somewhere in the temple complex looking down, but they are not filled with shouts of joy. They are filled with despair. They see everything unraveling before their eyes because now the world has gone after him. There seems to be no hope of stopping the people from exalting Jesus as king into this confluence of the crowd from Bethany and the crowd from Jerusalem and the crowd of the Pharisees, John then pulls a fourth group to show that the Pharisees were right, that the world was going after Jesus. And through the arrival of this group, we see that Jesus is not just the gentle Messiah King focused on the Jewish people, but Jesus is the King of the world. Jesus is the King of the world. If I wanted to be pithy, I think I was going to say he's the gentle Messiah king and he's also the Gentile king because he comes for the Gentiles. If we read the, the full prophecy of Zechariah, 
we find in the next verse, Zechariah 9, 10, we, we hear these words about this coming Messiah. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Part of the misunderstanding of those that were waving the palm branches was not only in terms of how Jesus was going to establish his kingdom, but also who would be welcomed into his kingdom. They saw him as a national figure, but he was a universal one. We're told in verse 10 that there was a a group of Greeks who approached Philip asking to see Jesus. Philip then went to Andrew, and together they brought this request to Jesus. These Greeks were probably what were known as God-fearing Gentiles, like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. They were those who were not ethnically Jewish, but who, who saw the God of the Old Testament as the true God, and who therefore sought to attach themselves to the Jewish people, um, believing from a distance, as it were. And you get a sense of that distance in the way that they come to Jesus. They don't come to him directly. They go to Philip for whatever reason, maybe because of the town that he was from, that John gives us that detail for some reason. Maybe that's why they went to him. He was maybe their closest neighbor. Uh, But whatever it was, they were distanced from him. And what's interesting, I think, is that when Jesus hears that Greeks are seeking after him, what does he say? The narrative doesn't tell us whether or not he ever had an audience with them. All it says is that when Philip and Andrew came and said, hey, there's some guys, they're they're Greeks, and they're looking for you, Jesus. They want to talk to you. What's he say? The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Remember, remember this theme throughout John's gospel. It's all over the place, starting all the way back in chapter 2. That, that there's this moment, there's this hour that is coming. And, and remember, the hour is often delayed, whether John, John tells us through his own words or through the words of Jesus that he's, he's not arrested or he's not exalted because his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And yet, here at this request from the Greeks, he indicates that his hour has come. The hour of his glorification, the hour of his death is at hand. The hour has come into the Jewish fervor over Jesus and the Pharisees' anger at Jesus, we find Gentile curiosity about Jesus. Because as John said in John eleven fifty two, 52, he had not come to die only for the nation of Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And it's this worldwide mission that, that triggers Jesus' awareness that the hour has come. Why? I don't totally know. Maybe, maybe it was because he knew that the Jewish people wouldn't stand for this kind of worldwide Messiah. Maybe he saw the confluence of the crowds and he knew that he had placed himself into that current and it was going to take him to his death. Maybe it was because he saw that he'd done all that he could to glorify God through his life and now it was time for him to glorify God through his death. And not just to glorify his father, but also to glorify himself. Because the rest of this passage speaks to this truth. That Jesus is the king who is glorified through death. Jesus is the king that is glorified through death. How are kings usually glorified? Uh, Motorcades that don't include four Tauruses to start with. Or 
ceremonies and gifts. They're glorified through royal robes and gilded thrones. However, the scattering of fear, the arrival of joy, the saving of all nations is only possible if Jesus is willing to die. He compares his death to the germination of a seed. Think about a seed, small one. A seed absent from water does nothing. I've got a bunch of seeds in packets on a shelf high in my kitchen. And you know what they're doing up there? Nothing. They're not doing anything. But if I take one of those seeds and I plant it into the ground, it's going to sprout. And if I take care of it, it's going to bear some sort of fruit. However, if I take that seed and I bury it in the ground, do you know what happens to the seed? It's destroyed. Have you ever seen a plant pop up? The, the seed is gone. It's completely disappeared. Sometimes on that little stem, you might see like the shell of the seed. It's kind of an interesting thing sometimes. You'll, you'll see the, the shell, the husk of the seed that's just sort of broken open, but everything is, is gone from it. And Jesus is saying that that that's what has to happen to him. But that it has to happen because it's only in dying that he can bear fruit. He says that he knows that the only way for him to accomplish his mission of bearing fruit is to die. He's very matter-of-fact about this, isn't he? And yet we see his humanity in verse 27. After saying all this, he says, now is my soul troubled. He's troubled in this moment. The prospect of his death, including the particular way that he knew he was going to die, was distressing. And yet he knew that this was the whole reason that he'd come to earth. This was the plan from the beginning. So how could he turn back now? Maybe you've had this experience of preparing and practicing for something, but when the moment arrives for you to do it, you're scared. <laughs> maybe you can think if you've ever been in a talent show or kids, maybe you've been in some sort of a dance recital, maybe a big soccer game or some other game or a presentation that you have to give at school or at, at work. And you, you've been working hard to get ready for it for months and months you've been preparing. Maybe you've been preparing for your, your whole life and then the moment comes and you're like, I don't even want to do this anymore. The thing that you've been waiting for, you've been preparing for, you're, it's there, but you don't want to do it. You're scared. You'd rather not do this thing than do it. I think there's part of that as Jesus looks to the cross, he asks in distress, should I ask God to keep me from this moment? This hour that I've been preparing for, that I've come for, should I tell him, no, let's not do it? And in that moment of trouble and distress, where does he turn for motivation? Where does he turn for clarity? He turns to the glory of the Father. Look at that. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There's more going on there. Uh, at least he's, he says that he has come for this hour. He understands that part of the motivation is motivation. There's love for his people that is there. But also the glory of the Father is what motivates him. Faced with the difficulty of death, he reminds himself that he lives not for his own glory, but for the glory of the Father. And so he turns from his own comfort, from his own peace, even from his own desire to live in that moment. And instead he says, Father, glorify your name, even if it means my death even if it means the seed of me has to die. And what happens? 
the father responds. The father says to the son, he has glorified his name and he will do it again. Jesus has been faithful and he will be faithful all the way to the point of death and the father will glorify him as he already has. And Jesus tells us that that voice is not for him. It wasn't to encourage him. Who was it for? It's for the crowd. Why? So whether sooner or later, that when they saw Jesus die, they would not see it as his shame, but as his glory. So that they would see that, that his death marked the casting out of the ruler of the world, verse 31. Not the victory. So that when he was lifted up, signifying his death on the cross, they would not behold him as someone that they should turn their faces from, but that they would turn their faces to him, that they would look to him as they looked in the wilderness to the serpent who was held up, because in looking to Jesus, all would be saved. Remember, this was the hour of his glorification, right? This is the hour of Jesus' glorification, but what's it going to look like? It's going to look like complete humiliation. It's going to look like complete defeat. And the voice of the Father comes to say, that's not what it is. I've glorified it. I will glorify it. This is the reason that Jesus has come. This is why I sent him. So Jesus was seeking to show them that what appeared to be his death is what leads to life. That what appeared to be his humiliation would lead to his glory. That what looked like the enemy's victory was actually the enemy's defeat, that what should have made people turn away from him in shame was what should cause them to look to him for salvation. This is how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The words of Jesus are folly to the crowd. The actions of Jesus are folly to the crowd. They don't fully understand it. According to verse 34, we find that they're asking questions. They, they don't even know who the Son of Man is, let alone that, that his going away in death fits the vision of the Messiah that would reign eternally. And so Jesus says, you guys got to walk in the light while it's here. I'm here just a little bit longer. You guys got to walk with me. You got to see the light that invitation is to us as well, to walk in the light of the truth of the gospel, seeing who Jesus really is, that Jesus is the gentle Messiah King. He is the King of the world, and that he is, is those things because he is the King who is glorified through death. By God's grace alone, our eyes can see that the cross is not foolishness. It's power. That, that through the death that Jesus is able, that through his death, Jesus is able to respond in love and power to our cries of Hosanna, save us. Only, the only way that he can bear that fruit of salvation is if he dies. But here's what's interesting. We also see that Jesus is not only calling us to walk in the light of that truth, to believe what he's saying about his death, but also this, that Jesus is the king who calls us to follow him into death. Jesus is the king who calls us to follow him into death. Which is a whole nother sermon. 
for next Sunday. <laughs> We're going to save our discussion of this idea for next Sunday. I had it in here because I thought maybe we could pull it off, but I don't think that verses 23 through 26 should be rushed through because I think what we find is that Jesus is not only saying that he is going to be buried like a seed, but that we need to be buried like a seed, that we need to die so that God can be glorified through us, that we who are his followers follow him into death. John Piper says it this way in a sermon on this text, his death for our salvation becomes his design for our imitation. His death for our salvation becomes his design for our imitation. Not so that we can earn our salvation. Our salvation is rooted in what Christ has done. And yet, if we believe in it, then it becomes the thing that we imitate. As I said, we're going to talk about this next Sunday. But even now, our souls might be troubled by that prospect. The call to die? I don't want to die in any way, metaphorically, physically. And therefore, what should we do? We should turn to the motivation that Jesus turned to, the glory of God. It was the reality that his greatest desire was for God to be glorified that, that helped keep him on the Calvary road. And so too, we should long for God's glory above all else. That's what's going to keep us following Christ, even if it means we have to follow him into death, even if it means losing our lives so that we can find it, even if it means serving others and laying down our rights. Only then can we say with Paul, words like he says in Acts 20, verse 24, I don't count my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And to testify to the gospel is to give glory to King Jesus, the gentle Messiah King, the King of the Jews and the Gentiles alike, the King who was glorified through death and the King who invites us to join him on the path that leads to death and resurrection and servanthood and everlasting life and everlasting joy. I want to invite you to think on King Jesus, that he is not who we expect him to be, that he's the king, though, that we can cry out to, save us, God, save us. But even now, let's let our hearts begin to think about what does it mean to follow a king like that? What does it mean to follow a king that was willing to die to save us? What does it mean when he calls us to lose our lives for his sake? I want to invite you into a moment of silence to maybe reflect on some of these things, and then I'll close us in prayer. Hosanna, save us, God. You're the only one who can. And we need you to save us. We cannot save ourselves. Lord, our longing is for your glory, the glory that you receive through saving us, and also even the glory you receive as we lay down our lives for your sake. Lord, help us to see King Jesus for who he truly is. Help us to see the unique nature of, of your kingdom, Help us to be willing to follow you even into death itself. We thank you for Christ that he has purchased our salvation through his death. 
Help us to trust in that and help us to follow him on that road. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.